Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we where we do all the things on Linux they said could be done and t- take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me with... Oh, man. Speaking is not what I'm doing well tonight. It's a, Steve, welcome in. <laughs> Would you like me to handle some of the emails for yeah, you tonight? Yeah, can you introduce yourself? Can you tell everybody who you are and what we're doing? Because apparently I don't know. Yeah, so this is a show where you call in and ask us uh, Linux questions or email in. And if you guys don't do that, then we just blather on about whatever strikes are fancy. So you probably want to you know, engage with us yeah, a little bit. Nobody wants to listen to that, let me tell you. <laughs> Our first email, it comes in from Aaron. Aaron writes in and says, Howdy, no one, Steve. You guys had mentioned some remote desktop support tools like Rustdesk. Could I ever get your two cents on this tool? And he links to DW Service at dwservice.net. It's a free and open source service, though you can donate to support it. The agent runs on all client nodes, and then there's a web UI. You log into the machines. You remotely control them. Also, through the web UI, you can access files on the hard drive, view detailed system information, and even open a terminal. I've been using it to help manage some of our PCs at my congregation, but reluctant to use it at home. It feels a bit too much like a backdoor. Anyway, curious to what you think. Stay awesome. Aaron. So... Steve, did you take a look at this? And if so, what were your thoughts? I did take a look at this. Um, so I'll just address the idea of the backdoor. Uh, any kind of remote connection software you have will be a, a backdoor. That's the whole point of it. So it, that's literally the definition of the software is, can I get into the machine without anybody else around? And that's, <laughs> that's the definition. So I'm not surprised it feels like a backdoor. Because uh, it is one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I took a look and... Uh, to their credit on the FAQ, they they actually have a thing about how is this free. They run on donations, and that has me uh, a little bit wary, just because in the event that it gets moderately popular and the subscription, the people that are choosing to subscribe do not keep up with the demand, then they'll have to seek alternative sources. And, you know, I'd rather know what the business model is than not like with rust desk you can self-host it and so even though they have a support tier and stuff like that and this is not an ad for rust desk just a comparison you know they have they have a support tier but you can self-host it and so because you can self-host it it means that um there is no business model to compete with the project may stop from the official maintainers but that doesn't mean that you you are somewhat hamstrung at that point other than that, I mean, it looks it looks halfway decent. I don't have any kind of... Um, I didn't see anything that jumped out as a red flag, and I thought it was good that they were kind of uh, philanthropic. What did you think? So things I liked about it right off the bat, love that it's web-based. Anytime I can get something into a web browser, I'm genuinely happy about that because it means one less thing that I have to install and configure. If it's a tool I'm going to use on a daily basis, it kind of flops for me. I almost prefer to have a local app. Because 
I already have so many things that are running in the web browser. Sometimes it's nice to be able to minimize and treat that as a separate thing. I like that it supports file sharing. I've been, as anybody who's listened to the show for five minutes knows, I've been looking at different remote desktop solutions lately. So we're looking at trying to replace Simple Help. One of the problems I come again, come across is it's hard to find something that does all the things that Simple Help does well. So I was happy to see file sharing. I like that they have an on-demand option as well as an always running option. That is a, a key for anybody who works on IT support because you're going to have the people that call up and you need to get into their system one time. And then you have the places that you want persistent access to their systems. And those are two different work scenarios. And it's nice to have that all funneled to one service. I like that they're doing it as a free service. I think the best way to get anybody on board to anything is to offer it for free. Show them what your service can do. If you can't run your service well, then there's no chance that I'm going to be able to. But like you, I got to the end of it and I'm like, okay, great. It's open source. It doesn't know. How do I self-host it? Uh, nothing. Presumably, because the code is open, presumably, I could go take the server. I could set it up. Presumably, I could go customize the client and change the you know address URLs to point to the server that I've set up. So presumably, it's possible. But um would be nice if they pushed that a little more. And there's no way, there's no way I would enroll a machine inside of somebody else's service. I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it with TeamViewer. I wouldn't do it with this. If you have to do that, or if you're in a business environment where you don't care about the data on the machine. So, for example, radio station comes to mind. There's literally nothing on the studio PCs that anybody cares about. For crying out loud, they're all connected to a broadcast console sending the signal out 24 hours a day, seven days a week anyway. So the whole idea is anything on that machine is supposed to be public. We're trying to get it out. We spend lots of money to get it out. So in that particular case, there's no there's no advantage to a potential attacker to go into something like that. But if I was working at a law firm or a medical firm or anything where I cared about privacy, no way. Wouldn't wouldn't touch it. But I think it's really cool. And I like that it's open source. Our second email comes in from Howard. Howard writes in and says, Dear Noah and Steve, hope you're both staying cool over there in the U.S. It is hot as anything here in Japan. Would you kindly provide a recommendation for a replacement router? And then he links uh, to a diagram of his home ISP. He says he'd like to replace a ZTE F660A, the router that he currently has, the one that he got with his ISP. He prefers that a router come with something that you could flash open source software on, something like OpenWRT or PFSense, the router would also need to be able to connect to a fiber connection back to the ISP. Steve, thoughts on router hardware platforms? Hmm, tough one. Uh, mostly because I don't have a fiber port. Like, even though I technically have fiber, it's fiber to the block and then coax to the to the home. So I don't actually have any experience with, with this sort of um, setup. Okay. I mean, the mesh Wi-Fi behind it makes sense, as far as I can see. I, I don't know that I would go with the atlases, but I don't have like I don't have anything specifically against them. What What do you think? Well, uh, if you need to interface with the fiber port, I I can think of a couple of options. I guess the first option is I've seen a number of places that just put like a micro node in, so you'd have to check to make sure that the you could get transceivers that would get you the speed that you want to get to but oftentimes you can get like a fiber micronode and it'll take in fiber and then spit out a copper ethernet connection that's 10 gig um, so that might be one option another option might be to purchase something like a small server that you can put an sfp card in and then you could attach fiber to it yeah as long as the operating system supported that right so i would think that pfsense uh, will support doing that because I, if I'm not mistaken, that is how they're doing their uh, link aggregation. They have um, essentially 
two little two little things in like an internal switch and it it bonds them together so i would think that connecting to like an sap transceiver wouldn't wouldn't be an issue but i guess i've never tried it in uh you know in practice so i guess i i couldn't tell you for sure yeah i'm pretty much in the same boat so um Check out those two options. See what you think. Also, if you're listening to the show, write in live at asknoshow.com. Would love to uh, to hear if you have done this. Um, in fact, actually, I'm thinking of one specific client that that is I I know for a fact now that I think about it that they ordered a 7100U from NetGate and they put an SAP transceiver in it and connected it to fiber. I I, I say that with 99.99999% certainty. I will I'll double check on it. Um, but if so, it wasn't much to get it set up, and so you would. You, you could go down that route. But I'll, I'll double check and, and hopefully maybe even get it out with this week's show notes. Our third email comes in from Lucas. Lucas writes in and says, Hi, No and Steve. I have a Lenovo T490, 500 gigabyte M.2 drive, Kubuntu 2004. I'd like to switch to a one terabyte drive, and I'm wondering what the best way to migrate my current operating system without having to install from scratch. Thanks for all the hard work you do. Best regards, Lucas. Steve. So for, let me ask you this. Before we get to Lucas's question, would you, would you migrate the thing over or would you just nuke and pave? I've done both. Um, I would say that if you, I've absolutely done this because I've had a work laptop that I just didn't want to, or maybe lost access to the software or some other weird reason where I just wanted to migrate the drive. I've absolutely done that before um, because like a dying hard drive or whatever, it can be a bit of a task. It depends on, a lot of things. So, so in my case, I had the Lux encryption on there, and then that that kind of stumped me for a little bit because, yeah, you can see why that would be problematic. Uh, I did it with RSync, to be quite honest. I got another hard drive. I plugged it in. I booted it into a live environment. I decrypted the drive, and then RSync everything over. Um, then turns out I had to muck around a little bit with with the um, with Lux itself to get the encryption to um, be recognized again. And then I've also done the nuke and pave. So I guess it depends on what's what's more more or less painful. Although if you're on 2004, it might be a good idea to uh, do 2204 and see, like just to give yourself that upgrade path since 2004 will, will go end of life. I mean, it's not going to be anytime soon. You got a couple of years, but... If you're already doing a hard drive migration anyways, why not buy yourself the extra couple of yeah. years and jump to the next LTS? Yeah. So I'm I'm not a f- – so I've gone through this process of I outright reject trying to treat my computers like pets anymore. I have – I've tried to draw a very firm line in the, in the sand that these are cattle. They are workhorses, and the second that they show a sign of problem, I shoot it in the head and we start all over again. And I've gotten that down largely thanks to Ansible. But Ansible and C-File, those two things enable me to basically take any hardware platform and in a matter of seconds turn it from an ordinary uh, laptop into Noah's laptop. And so that might be where I might start by asking yourself that question is, is are you in this boat in the first place because there is something magical about the way that computer set up? And if so, would you use this opportunity to take a different approach? So if that's not the case... Steve, what would you think about making a CloneZilla copy of that computer, CloneZilla over it to a new drive, then decrypt the drive and open it with something like Jeep Barted and 
resize if you're going to a bigger drive or just leave it if you're not going to a bigger drive, if it's the same you size. Could, you could do that. There's a couple of things that you might be wary of. So, for example, if you are going from different block size of the underlying hardware, because mm. um, 500 gig hard drive could go either way, where it's 4K or it could be 512. Um, there's There's all kinds of implications for that sort of thing. When you're moving from an older hard drive to a newer hard drive, You'd have to make sure that that those sorts of things line up or you will suffer somewhat of a penalty. You might not notice it because your new drive might be significantly faster, but it's one of those things where it'd be performing suboptimally. And so you need to, that would be one of the only times where I would be kind of shy away from a Clonezilla is just because it does, it basically picks up exactly what you have and puts it down in bite for bite in Mm. the new drive. So if there was some sort of corruption, you would carry that over. Not just corruption, but but like I said, more the more the way the file system is laid out on the block sizes and stuff like that. It's assuming when you're doing a byte for byte copy, it basically assumes that you're going to pick it up and put it down in the same fashion as where gotcha. it was before. Okay, so all options you could look into. Um, so let us know what you ultimately decide on. I, w- I would love to hear it, but I, w- I would again, I would ask you to sit down and like if that machine you know, fell into a swimming pool and you were starting over anyway, what would you do differently? And wherever the pain points are, maybe consider addressing them now. And then right back in, live at asknoshow.com. I want to know how that works out. Our fourth email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, G'day, everyone. I'll be installing Linux on a decent number of laptops and soon bandwidth is limited often in Australia. What's a good recommendation for a situation to update 10 to 25 machines locally instead of updating a machine using the internet together all at the same time. Is it possible to mirror Linux distro repo file system such as Debian and offer it locally without much altering or extra software? Also, does anyone have any good tutorials or blogs, videos on NFS shares inside of Windows? This might have been covered in the past, but I'm interested in getting a NFS share to Arch Debian, Windows 8, Home Theater PC, and a Kodi box. Thanks in advance. All the best. So, Steve, what say you? Is it possible to run a local repo? You don't want to run a local repo, to be honest. I've gone down both routes, um, particularly for something like an Ubuntu or a Debian-based, because there's just so many packages. You're, what you're more looking for is something like AppCache or NG. And what that does is um, you point all of your boxes at the network, on the network to that, and then it proxies the call for you. And the reason why you would do that is if as long as you've updated one, it will cache and hold all of the packages for you that that box is, has used. So like the uh, an Ubuntu archive might be 15, 20, 30 gigs. But honestly, the majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of people maybe have a gig or two that they're actually using out of that. And so what AppCache ND does is the first time somebody calls and it doesn't have the package, it goes out to the internet, fetches it for you, then serves it back locally. The next time that somebody calls in, it just turns the request right around. It's like, I have this file. Here you go. Um, and so, I've done this with CentOS. I've done this with uh, Ubuntu and Debian-based systems and so on. Does that break SSL? It does not um, because the um, your host is calling the AppCacher NG and the AppCacher NG is calling the official websites. So it's I making see. the outbound SSL connection to, if, if they're SSL, to the remote uh, repo for on your behalf. Okay. And then you'd point all of the other clients to that first one? Yep. Yep. It listens on a specific host. I, I 
this is one of the few cases where I hosted this in a container because I needed this one to be always up and slide around. So in my OpenShift environment, this lived in my OpenShift environment because it uh-huh. needed to be up because otherwise you'd have a bunch of 404s happening all the time. So if it's in a con- – where is the storage? Is is that you're using that as – like you're putting that on your NAS? Yep. Yep. It's just an NFS mount to the NAS. Um, for, for Archboxes, the easy solve is the exact same idea where you have an NFS mount to uh, var cache Pac-Man PKG. Uh-huh. Um, that's what I do in our house with the 20 so Archboxes. I run one of them runs first and then everybody runs behind it. And maybe there's 20 megs that goes out to the internet after the first one goes because of some difference in packages, but they, because they're all mounting the same package cache, um, they all just pull and like, Oh, I've got local package cache and they just pull it off the NFS server. And so the, so essentially all you're doing is sharing that package cache around with multiple machines. Yep. Okay. That's very, that's so interesting. And you know, if I remember right, you were the one that, um, that did, you did something similar with Cody, right? You po- pointed the media repo to the, or the media storage, metadata storage to the same place. So all the TVs were in sync. Yep. That's correct. And the other thing that, that is good from an arch perspective on the NFS share is that, um, when you're using the, the Wayback machine or like the, the archives or whatever, when you set mm-hmm. it to a point in time, you don't have to go and fetch those packages from the internet because you have them already. So you set it back and those things are throttled like crazy. So if and there have been times in the past where I've had to lock it to a specific day because an NVIDIA driver broke or you name it. And there was just something we haven't had it in almost two years, but we used to have it, I'd say once a year where I'd have a package break to the point where it's like, no, I'm going to pin this to the previous day and mm-hmm. everybody just loaded off of that and because of the package cache you can you can downgrade an arch system um fairly easily by just simply specifying the day in which you want the packages to be from and then pacman will go and say oh i have to downgrade all of these packages which can take a while if you're doing that over the internet because they throttle the archives <laughs> so it's it has been a very advantageous thing i used to maintain the cache going back three years um just this week, I purged them, and so now I'm only carrying, I don't know, nine or ten months worth of the cash. This is such, it's such an elegant way to do it. I love it, Steve. I absolutely love it. Um, so as far as NFS shares go, uh, you know, really, so I'll we'll have a link for you with Windows. It's funny. So when we were going through this feedback, I asked uh, the other people that were in the room with me when I was reading through this, and I said, so who's done this on Windows? Silence. And finally somebody goes, uh, we'd have to use windows to know how to do that on windows. But I, so I, I have an article that links that shows you how to use it in windows. Quite honestly, I've never put NFS to, into production on windows. If I need a block level device, I'm usually mounting it over iSCSI. If I'm making a network share, I'm almost always doing it over Samba. If it's a network share that needs high, like, uh, you know, faster access to data, it's because it's a server and then windows isn't on it. So, um, and in Linux, it's super straightforward to do NFS sharing. It's literally as simple as installing the NFS client package and opening up your Etsy FSTAB and adding a one line to mount it in Linux. So um, I'll have those commands in the show notes. You can find those podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our fifth email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, in episode 297, a listener mentioned Cloudflare. I've had quite a bit of experience with this platform as well as Akaimai. The two main reasons that I've seen this used is for A, DDoS protection and content caching. 
for small websites, it's probably not inv- worth investing the time in. However, for larger websites, you can always use it in the future for their proxy mode and DNS services. Typically, these use cases are for large brand names where DDoS is a real concern, as well as caching browser content for millions of users. Regarding privacy, I can't say I've heard anything negative, but I would say that they have a good track record of protecting freedom of speech. Many of the so-called fringe websites that are perhaps not so politically correct use Cloudflare to protect themselves from malicious attacks. If you look up some of these websites' IPs on Aaron, you'll notice that they are directing you to the Cloudflare network. Building both DDoS protection network and a content caching network is very expensive, hence why most people don't invest in doing this. All the best, Jeremy. So I really, I really appreciate that kind of feedback because it's interesting to know why people are choosing Cloudflare. I hear a lot of positive talk in general. It's very difficult to point or. I should say I have not come across very specific things that they're doing very well. And you are not the only one uh, that pointed this out, Jeremy. Tiny also writes in and says, hey, it's Tiny from Matrix. First off, sorry about the novella. Uh, first off, sorry about the novella about Cloudflare. I would be more than happy to come on the show and talk about it more. I just wanted to write in and talk about Cloudflare and why one would use it. I agree that there's a certain amount of risk when using it with apps like NextCloud along with the 30-second timeout since Cloudflare can man in the middle of your traffic. But why does Cloudflare do this? Well, Cloudflare, along with being a DNS provider, offers a CDN and DDoS protection, SSL offloading, and redirects for free if you choose to use them as your DNS provider. This can be enabled per subdomain with a couple of clips in their web UI using their API. If Cloudflare sees static assets like JavaScript files, images, or CSS being requested multiple times, it will keep a copy of those assets so it can respond to clients faster. All of this to say is, if you have a site that's designed to be public-facing, Cloudflare can improve your performance and security. And Cloudflare is an amazing DNS provider and register. So if you're concerned that they are snooping on your traffic, you can just use their DNS for those subdomains. And so again, I'd put Tiny's feedback uh, up here with Jeremy, like, this is really great to understand why people are doing what they're doing with Cloudflare. It's also, I would go as far as to say, nice to see that there are some services that are standing up to censorship and freedom of speech and saying, hey, you know what? We're not going to stop you if you want to put your message on the Internet. You're ultimately responsible for the consequences of that and the popularity or lack thereof of your of your content. But we're going to stand behind you. And I found a couple of cases in where Cloudflare had told sent people hiking, but I, my, my research has kind of bore out what's come in in these past two pieces of feedback that, for the most part, they're a company that is pretty much willing to do business with anyone. Steve, have you had any experience with Cloudflare? And if so, what are your impressions? I mean, I've, I've read the same things about Cloudflare uh, being rather generous with, with providing protection to, to people that might have what are considered questionable mm, points of view at the same time they've also drawn a line in the sand saying you know what you're too big of a target we're you know here's your notice we're we're no longer protecting you after x x period of time i think that's that's relatively reasonable um honestly i have a lot more experience with akamai than i do with cloudflare i don't have any clients that that have been using cloudflare and i have a ton that are using akamai so maybe it's just the circles i run in yeah, I would be. I, I'm going to have to check them out. I've I've not used Akamai. To be fair, I've not really used Cloudflare. I've just I've had some clients that use them, so I poked around in a little bit, but not really dug into it too deeply. But does Akamai support encrypted DNS? 
Uh, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. Most of the people are using it for caching, DDoS, like that sort of that okay. sort of stuff. But they've been Akamai's been pretty legit. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody complain about them. I worked for a company for three years that used them, and I didn't have any specific complaints about it. Very cool. Our gadget of the week this week is actually me asking you a question. So I'm going to ask you to send in your thoughts on what gadget I should purchase here. You can send those to live at AskNoahShow.com. So life circumstances have got me to the point where I am in the market to purchase a 3D printer. So I have dug down the rabbit hole of what should I buy? Obviously, the 3D printer has to work with Linux. Obviously, it, so and my understanding as to how that works is so essentially they're basically gigantic CNC machines. And so they work on something called Marlin firmware. And this is a, a, a standard of sorts that takes the G code that is generated for that specific model and then allows you to print with essentially serial commands. So my understanding is that barring a couple of weird models, for the most part, most of these printers work out of the box with Linux. So my two leading options right now are the Perusa, uh, which is a completely open source printer ship, uh, ships out of with out of the box support for Linux and the Creality Ender 3 Pro, which a couple of people I know in the open source community have them really like them. They work very well with Linux. Additionally, they uh, they're very inexpensive. They're kind of a great entry-level uh, thing to get into. So in my research, my understanding is that you find 3D files or generate 3D files either in something like FreeCAD or Blender. And then once you have that 3D model, you need to slice it. You need to turn it into code that can send it to the printer to say, move the printhead here, uh, you know, apply this particular temperature, drop this much material, stop dropping here, move to this location, that sort of thing. And that's called slicing. That generates what's known as G-code files. And then you can, t- and which are essentially text files, and you can upload these files to a uh, a piece of software that's connected to the computer. Or you can use something called uh, Octoprint, which essentially... You run it on a Raspberry Pi, plug it into the printer, and now you have a web UI that you can drop these G-code files in, and it will send it out to the printer and print. So, Steve, I know you've had a printer for years. What has been your impression of 3D printing, and how does one get started? So, my first question for you was, what does it mean to work with Linux? Because, honestly, I just put my 3D prints onto an SD card and plug the SD card into the 3D printer and call it a day. So, yeah, all of those things work in Linux. <laughs> Fair enough. So the Octoprint appeals to me because it even supports having like a webcam. So one of the things I'm thinking about is I could let my kids participate in this and they could upload their print files to the web UI and then actually see it printing without having to worry about my six-year-old like touching the filament. Yeah. um, So that's fair. Octoprint has a really wide swath of things that it works with as far as I know. Um, I have a Creality CR6, and I love it. I would absolutely recommend it for beginners because it does things like auto bed leveling, which is just wonderful. Um, You have to level your bed every once in a while, anytime you change your print head, or if you're changing the filaments of types or anything of that nature, you should be leveling your print head or leveling your bed. And you can... If you are a tinkerer, there are absolutely things that you can do, like mods that you can buy for other printers that add this in. But um, the CR6 was my, it's my only printer, but it was my first one. And I got it because it has a bunch of those features 
Like you just push a button and say, hey, level the bed and you're done. Um, you know, it even has a little carrying handle. It was It's meant to be moved, this one in particular. So you unplug the cable and like the power cable and just lift it up and walk away with it. Oh, so, hey, Steve, atypical in the chat room just linked to a home assistant integration for Octoprint. Yep, there's there's a bunch of stuff like that. I mean, I I went much simpler than that. Um, I have a power monitor plug on mine, mm-hmm. and I simply monitor the amount of power draw and then cut the power when the power draw drops, so that the 3D printer goes off. Okay. So, so I so you so you're you're a huge fan of the Creality. So it was great. I talked to somebody uh, sleuth actually, one of the people that helps out producing the show, and he has a Creality Ender. Or no, I'm sorry, he's worked with the Creality Ender Three. He's also worked with some very expensive, uh, very high end professional models that are designed really for doing uh, like professional part design. And he said, if I was to buy one, he goes. I'd buy the Ender 3. And he goes, not only that, he goes, I would say that the stuff that Creality is making today rivals the quote-unquote professional models that were made years ago that companies were using to generate parts. And he's like, and now you you can get a lot of these for the same price. So I'm leaning heavily towards Creality after talking to three people that have those. But Peruse is still on the list just because they have such – it seems like they have such a large commitment to open source. Um, But if you have a 3D printer or if you have experience with 3D printers, I would love to know what do you have, what do you like about it, what do you not like about it. Then the other thing, if I go – can I have – like my kids, can they go pick something off of Thingiverse, uh, import it into – I think it's called Ultimate Acura is the open source uh, slicer that was – um, recommended to me and can you just drop a, a, a 3d object from thingiverse into cura and then spit out g-code for the creality ender 3 and then print generally this the answer is yes i mean that you're you're relying on the other person to have made a good model right um you can absolutely do that uh you might have to tweak it a little bit here or there it depends on your printer as for the prusa um, that's what Red Hat ran in its 3D printing lab for a long time. They're kind of like the Rolls Royce, and they were the like they were leading uh, Linux support way back in the day. Mm-hmm. So I have nothing bad to say about them. It's just the Creality's were the um, let's say more maker friendly. Like mm. they know that people are going to tinker around with them and make their own mods and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the Prusa ones are like, hey, you want a ball and 3D printer? Here you go, out of the box. It costs you a little extra. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's so cool. I absolutely love it. So here are some of my questions. I, I think, uh, you know, um, Thingiverse is where I would get, you know, files. And I think I have a pretty good handle on what software used to create the 3D models. How much design experience do I need to open up CAD and actually design a thing and then print it? Because I got to tell you, I took a CAD class back in college and it was... That was something like at the time, and maybe it's changed now, but at the time you had to like enter commands at the bottom to get AutoCAD to put the cursor in different places and such. Well, it's not like that anymore, especially with um, FreeCAD. So there's two ways you can do it. Blender is a lot more freeform and, you know, you can be very artsy. And I've used Blender for, I use Blender for very art related things. So like if I'm making a fancy name, like a nameplate, or I've made like little things like a little well, just like a little scenes and stuff like that. I do that sort of kind of crafty stuff inside of Blender for for the functional stuff, I absolutely use FreeCAD, and I would say there's a learning curve, but there are tons and tons of really good quality videos on uh, YouTube. There's one particular guy, he splits his time between doing FreeCAD and, um, 
can't remember, but it's a proprietary one that I, I'm not using, but it's super popular. I just can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some good stuff out there. It, it, there is a bit of a ramp up. Like you're not going to be able to get this and just go and make something. You're going to have to sit down and learn. Yeah. Which is, well, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm, I, I am from the generation of go down to Radio Shack, buy some stuff and see what I can make with it. I am not from the generation of go to Best Buy and see what I can buy for something to do for me. I, I look at that quite differently, actually. If you're running open source software in your in a production environment for your business, for a client, then you absolutely have to have a way to support that. And so there's a number of different things that come into play here. So you have to look at what your business size looks like, right? If you're a large enough business, the chances are you're basically hiring people in-house to manage your infrastructure. And I would imagine, Steve, that's a lot of what you deal with is organizations that they buy infrastructure or they rent infrastructure on, uh, you know, from AWS or so, something else, but they're using it as theirs and they deploy their software and they run their services. If you're a smaller organization, you might use a cloud service. And the idea here is it's an economy of scale thing, right? If you have enough people using a particular service, then it can become very cost effective for a lot of people because you can apply it to, you know, you can rent huge service or rent, you know, space in AWS, that sort of thing. Um, but if you, your other option is you can try to manage it in-house being a small firm. And if you try to manage it in-house, you have two choices. Choice one is you either hire people. So you have an IT guy on staff and then you buy software from companies and try and make it work. Or your second option is you hire a firm to manage it for you, and then typically that firm will roll a lot of the costs, software costs and licensing costs and stuff like that, and what you're buying is the expertise, their expertise plus the software software's abilities, and they'll... To, to IT companies will typically roll that into a package for you. So the the issues that I've come into time and time again is... Companies don't like spending money on IT. In fact, oftentimes they'll start with like an IT budget of like, here's what we think we're going to spend. Then they'll come up with a dream list of what they want, and then they'll scale back to have it meet the budget. And what can be frustrating is sometimes as an IT professional, you'll see something time and time again, and you'll say, I know where this road ends. We should spend money here, and we should do it this way, and then you won't have these problems. And you know what? Companies that aren't don't understand the technology and aren't uh, excited or passionate about technology that's not really what they want to spend their money on and so as a part of that they don't realize up front how much downtime costs them monetarily and so when something does get pushed off and pushed off and pushed off and not maintained and pushed off and pushed off and up oh, there it falls down what do they do the reaction is oh my gosh downtime cost me a lot of money i don't want that responsibility i'm going to shift that off and so at Altusby, we've kind of been in a unique position because we started doing the former, right? We used to go in and put in, and we still do to a degree, but put in infrastructure into a client's environment and have it run there and help them support it. But as clients and people in general have just kind of moved to, I want to know how much a month, and then I want to have the thing delivered to me, and I just want it to work. As we're moving towards that model, of course, we want to have a soft landing space 
for those for those kinds of clients as well. And so as a company who has started doing that, of course, we do it with open source software, but that leaves an issue of escalation. So we have flowcharts when we come across problems like is it a hardware problem or a software problem? If it's a hardware problem, we do these things. We try these things. If it's a software problem, we do these things. And one of the things on that flowchart is when we have exhausted all of the documentation, we've exhausted all of our community support options, we've exhausted all of the knowledge we have collectively as a company, then the next step is to escalate it to the software vendor. Hey, your product isn't behaving as expected. Do you know anything about this and how can we fix this? And in a proprietary software situation, that path is typically very well defined and typically has some sort of a support contract or maintenance agreement that comes with it. And so it's fairly well defined. When you come to open source, it gets a little bit trickier for two reasons. One is there isn't always a direct support option. Sometimes it's not very clear how you go about escalating an issue to a project. And the second part is the vast majority of open source projects are not designed to be to support you know, a bunch of businesses. They're, they're designed to be one thing. It's either a passion project or it's a passion project, maybe by a group of people, but there isn't a lot, there isn't necessarily a business essential support thing built into that. And so what we try to do is add that layer for open source. And the, the, the past few weeks have been very enlightening as I've kind of watched these processes play out side by side. So I want to start here by saying that the companies that directly offer hosting for their projects are the kind of projects I ideally like to do business with. And the reason for that is, one, I've said it numerous times and I'll continue to say it, you know how to post your stuff the best. If you can't make your project work, I can't make your project work. And so it's genuinely nice to be able to tell clients or people that want to use this thing, here's how you sign up for a Bitwarden account. Here is how you sign up for a hosted matrix or element thing. Here is how you sign up for a supported Red Hat installation. Here is how you sign up for a, a support contract to get help with TrueNAS or help with uh, PFSense through NetGate. All of these companies offer that kind of support. When that isn't available, that's when you have to start getting creative. So I first want to call out these companies, Bitwarden, NextCloud, Element and Matrix, Red Hat, 45 Drives, IX Systems, and Netgate, all of these companies at one time or another, we have had a client that has had a problem, and they have come alongside us and helped us. And Steve, I would throw a particular uh, shout out to your uh, your place of employment, Red Hat. We had a server that I got in very much over my head at a local university, didn't know, uh, I had some very esoteric software that I was working with, didn't know what I was doing, couldn't make it work. Got a Red Hat support agreement. Within a few hours, I had somebody from Red Hat on the phone. They had never heard of the software before. It didn't stop him from helping me get it to run. He knew enough. He knew enough about Red Hat and knew enough about Linux and understood enough about the error messages that I was getting that he was able to help me arrive at the right answer, even though he had never worked at the software before. And that kind of white glove, let me turn around and just help you fix your problem is the kind of thing that I very much appreciate from Red Hat. It's, the, by the way, the same kind of experience that uh, our clients get when they reach out to places like 45 Drives. Very, very tailored, custom, white glove. We are here to help you and support you do your thing. So, again, before I go any further, I want to stop there and say, like, that is the preferred way to do it because you're supporting the people that – the movers and the shakers of those actual projects. Every time somebody hires 45 drives to help them build out a storage array, you are supporting the company that is building the really cool cockpit interfaces and stuff like that. Anytime you buy a TrueNAS system from IX Systems or 
uh, sign up for a support agreement from NetGate, you are helping fund the development of the next TrueNAS or, or PFSense. So I, if, the, if at all possible and when possible, I absolutely recommend, would implore you in the strongest possible way to go that direction. But what happens when that isn't available? What happens when there's an excellent piece of open source software out there and there isn't a direct support, uh, you know, escalation path. And this is something that I ran into the past two weeks. So we have a software project, open source software project uh, in production, very large project, number of clients that are using it. And they recently released a newer version. So we let it sit for a few weeks and we spun up a test instance and said, hey, we want you to go into this development instance. We want you to try it make sure the practice instance is working great. Uh, try all the things that you would do. We loaded all of their actual data in there so they could click around as if they were on a production instance. And they tried it for about a week and said, yep, this does everything we want it to do. Everything is great. Okay. When would you like us to do the upgrade? This is the time that works the best. Uh, you know, the downtime will be about 45 minutes. So if you do it here, then we will not need it and all the things. Okay. So we schedule it. We execute it. It goes great. The deployment's there. They come in the next morning. We meet them on site. Everything working. Yep. Everything's great. We're really happy. Thanks for everything you do. Fine. No problem. We go away. Fast forward to yesterday. Hey, there's a problem. What's the problem? Hey, this thing isn't working the way we thought it would. It's a bug. We look at it for a couple seconds. Wow, this is pretty bad. What are we going to do about this? Because we can't continue to use this like this. This is going to hinder, you know, our, our business. Okay, we're going to figure that out. So the process, the problem was they pushed an update to this newest piece of software that was a bug and it just didn't, it didn't make QA. It just didn't get caught and it only bit you under very certain set of circumstances, but they were arriving in that certain set of circumstances. So within 20 minutes, we had our in-house developer looking at the code. He ha came back to me and said, I know exactly what the problem is. Here's where the problem is. And if you click this button, this button, and this button in this order, then that problem won't happen anymore. I we, call, we go over to the client. We explain that to him. Within 45 minutes, they were back to, okay, great. We can, we can operate our business. That's no problem. We can do that. The workaround is no big deal. It takes no extra time. Not a problem. Great. By that afternoon... We had pushed a patch up to their server so that they weren't experiencing that issue anymore. And coming towards the end of the week here, we will have the, the correct fix submitted to upstream and likely they will merge that pull request. And then it will just be fixed for everybody that uses that piece of software. And I watched that open source support process play out side by side with a, a cloud based piece of software that a client got locked out of. And, or not locked out of, but it went, went down and they reached out to us and said, is there anything that we can do? So we reached out to that company and said, hey, we have a client that uses your service. It's down. We can't get to it either. Do you have an ETA of when it might come back up? Because they can't run their business until they can access the information that's in your cloud service. No response. And that was all day today that we waited for that response. So we left tonight and the guy who was working on the project said, what do you want me to tell the client? And I said, tell the client that we're out of options. We've tried everything we can do. We can't even get an ETA out of them. And so we're not able to do that. And in the process of doing that, we started looking at what this proprietary piece of software does. And essentially it's a glorified contact manager. And so we started looking and went, hold on a second. Nextcloud can check basically all of these boxes. And so now we look back and say, all right, we are going to write into a proposal like, hey, would you ever want to migrate to NextCloud? And watching how that process plays out, because I tell you, this proprietary alternative, it is not a cheap thing. It's not inexpensive. Um, but it's, it is, it is a, it is, it becomes an industry thing that, you know, other 
practitioners in their space use it. So then they assume that they should use it. Uh, and I, I look at they don't even respond to their customers within a day, whereas we have an incident response time of less than 60 minutes. And oftentimes we're actively fixing the problem for you. I look at that and I just I'm I'm proud. I'm proud to be a part of the open source community. And I like the direction that this is going, because really what it feels like, the best way I could describe it in my head is the open source geeks versus the proprietary professionals. Right. You have this way of doing IT for years and years and years and years and years. And the tide is starting to shift as people want these dynamic on demand services and they don't want it to run locally on their machine anymore. Don't care, really. It becomes the most efficient way to do that is in VMs or in containers, which makes them incredibly scalable. It also increases the availability of those services because now you can move them around wherever they need to be. And you can provide that same experience back to the customer, which is they point their web browser to a thing and the thing shows up and they don't really care why or how that happens. What they don't understand is underneath the hood, it essentially over the past few years has shifted from you need massive amounts of money and massive infrastructure to get here to you can rent a digital ocean droplet for X amount of dollars a month and you can run the software here. And by gosh, most of the time it's going to be up and the time that it is down is less than what you're getting with the proprietary solutions. And so that we kind of come back to that rising tides, kind of all the ships rise, right? As we as we start working on this large open source project I was referring to, we're paying our developer of really the client is paying our developer to fix these problems for them. But now everybody gets to benefit from that that process. And so I think we support open source projects, again, first by directly contributing to them monetarily and or using the products or services that they themselves offer. But then second of all, going through and doing things like this, either providing usability feedback on, hey, this doesn't work, or when we can or when we have to, hey, we will fix this for you because at the end of the day, we make money off of supporting our clients that are using this. Uh, Steve, what do you think of the So because you work, it's interesting, you work on the high end environment of it has to be up and it has to work. And yet I'm guessing most of your clients are not the free and open source loving type. They're in it more because it's just a more reliable solution. Yeah, there is. There are some clients that are are idealistic about open source. And I, I guess I mean, they like the idea of being able to contribute and stuff like that. And I can think of a few like that. But the majority of, of the, you know, the um, financial institutions, stuff like that, they're using open source more as a hedge or a uh, and just basically a paid option that's just different than what they had been using before. So it's it's not for the love of the open source necessarily, although that that's changing a bit, but more a pragmatist type of view. Do you see them at all doing it when you say a hedge? Is it all to get away from the lock in? Like, hey, I know that if I run this on Apache, that there's, you know, there's not going to be, you know, a licensing thing isn't going to change or Microsoft's not going to come audit me to see how many, you know, cores I'm allowed to run on and stuff. Do you see any of that? Yeah, there definitely is some of that. But I mean, honestly, at the scale that they work at, even the open source projects that they are dealing with will have some level of licensing on that scale anyway. So that's not something that they're unaccustomed to dealing with to begin with. It's largely it's more this thing provides me some flexibility. There's a there's a community and the knowledge around it is largely um accessible mm. to our people. 
So there's a there's a there's a better defined process for supporting and working with the environment. I suppose I guess it's it's like how do I troubleshoot this? How do I how do I deal with it? There's a lot more of that. The ability, like I said, it's the ability to go and find answers for yourself has definitely been a big thing that I have seen. Mm-hmm. And then some of it is um, we are looking for. So our vendors are providing software that does this, or in, in my case, uh, since I work with OpenShift, the Kubernetes distribution from Red Hat, that runs on Linux, so they will be running Linux. Mm. Um, and and so the vendors that they want to run the software for are running Linux. And so that's just, I, I really kind of see it with these big companies as it's, Linux has just replaced the AIX Unix side of things mm. where... That was where they were running their applications before, and now they're running them on Linux. Yeah, I, I, I like the change, you know, and the, it seems to me like it's getting more accessible. You know, there was a time where I've been run. I, I was I was recommending people put Linux on their systems before it was like the cool thing to do, right? Like I was the guy where everybody – like I worked at a church, one of the first churches I ever worked for. Every single time I would walk in the church, like once a week, uh, the the conversation would go like this. Hey, that server in the server room. Yeah. I it doesn't like come up with a desktop thing. It's just a blinking cursor. Uh huh. I know that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh yeah. Is there any way to get a blinking cur- or the desktop on there? No. It's it's supposed to be the cursor. It's all done through the command line. You don't need to ever touch it. It will just continue to work. Yeah. Does it work? Well, yeah. Everything's up. Yep. Okay. So nothing you need fixed. Nope. Week later. Hey, there's no desktop environment on that. So it's just a blinking cur- and uh, for whatever reason it was like just the seg fault in her brain. That that is the way that the the computer is supposed to run. But if you skip, if you fast forward now, fifteen twenty years later, you look at like Azure or AWS. That's all CLI. It's all running Linux on the back end. Even the Windows stuff is running Linux on underneath on the back end. It's an inter- it's an interesting evolution of how computing is re- is perceived in the wider audience. Mm. How so? Well, I just mean. Uh, we have become accustomed to purpose-built devices, like oh, yeah. a phone that does this, a thing that does that, a lot more. And so because of that, it's okay that a server doesn't have a GUI that I can go click around in. Or it's okay, like especially with containers, every, every container is a purpose and one purpose only. And so we've gotten away from this idea that we're going to load down a VM with as much things as we can on it. Mm. Um, and it's more going to be just, hey, that's the box that runs Confluence, or this is the container that runs Nextcloud, or you know whatever. It's very single purpose. So to kind of circle back to that piece of feedback we had at the top of the hour, the guy that's talking about fresh imaging his station. So we we were iterating on. I don't remember what the software stack. Oh, I know what it was. It was Prometheus and Grafana. When we were troubleshooting, we're still trying to move the matrix server into the data center. And so we were collecting, uh, we were collecting stats. And as we were trying to get this rolling, one of the things that was so fascinating to me, we'd hit a stumbling block and we would erase the entire server and rebuild it from scratch. Like the data was still there from the, but the, but every, all of the packages, everything was, was, was came in from a, like a fresh deployed droplet. And you would, and you could rerun that playbook as many times as you wanted because it didn't take us any more time. It, all, all the variables were defined. We had to enter the Ansible vault password so it could unlock all of the sensitive information. And then you wait until all the little green OKs come up and you get to the bottom and then you had everything was back up and running. And as I've watched that kind of play out and then we've, you know, horizontally scaled that to like everything that we deploy on a, on a pseudo regular basis now has an Ansible uh, 
playbook for it. And so it, it, it's so empowering to me to be able to hand somebody a flash drive with a folder on it and say, run Ansible dash playbook tack I, uh, you know, inventory slash hosts uh, space setup dot YAML and wait and it will configure your server to do the thing. And even if somebody doesn't understand what all of the individual, ta- all of the individual roles and all the individual tasks are in that playbook, that person can still take advantage of the thing on the other end. And we owe that largely to the thanks of the development to a lot of open source people who looked at this stuff and said, there's a better, simple, simpler way to do it. We owe a lot of that to the innovation of containers and we owe a lot of that to the innovation of Linux itself. So as you look at the, as you look at the, am I, am I off base when I say that this is becoming more accessible to other people in the way of, hey, if it's running inside of a container and you can run a container host on just about anything, uh, you can start to modularize that stuff and not pay so much attention to, hey, we paid a firm X amount of thousands of dollars to set this thing up. Yeah, the modularity has definitely come a long ways. It, it comes at a price, right? It, there is a lack of understanding that I'm seeing proliferate across the industry about how things work. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of to be expected. Every every piece of technology, as it becomes more mainstream and everybody's used to it, uh, the knowledge slowly starts to fall away. Yeah, that's fair. I well, we'll continue to uh, I'll, I'll I'll continue to keep everybody in the loop of how this stuff goes. But it was it was just so fascinating to watch this play out over the past few weeks and watch more or less open source go head to head with proprietary stuff and see where the better results were and that's open source empowers companies to do things one way and proprietary software in a lot of ways prevents you from doing it another way the music in our ears it means we're out of time show notes available podcast.asknoahshow.com follow me on twitter at kernel linux him at linux ovens the show at asknoahshow are back next tuesday at 6pm central asknoahshow.com have a good week